0: Hello and welcome to our podcast, Vanguard at Dawn. My name is Elisa, and I'm here with my co-host, Wren. Hello. And today the title of our episode is Through Her Eyes, The Life and Work of Zora Neale Hurston. Now, before we jump into the episode, I wanted to take a moment to address some misinformation that I spread through the Tea Time in regards to my artist, Zandria Phillips. I closed out my portion of that segment by reading a quote that I thought was from their work, Hull, but we were recently informed by Zandria themselves that that was actually from a review of the book hole and not their work itself. That review is from Daria M and it can be found on bind.net and we'll have that linked in our show notes if you want to check it out. It was very well written, very poetic, but not Xandria's work. So I just wanted to make that clear and to apologize to both of those writers for misrepresenting them and their work. Now that that has been addressed, let's jump into this episode. We will be exploring the life of Zora Neale Hurston, as well as some of the views she had regarding the cultural movement that took place during the Harlem Renaissance. We will also be going into a little more detail about the different ideas that frequently circulated during that time.
1: If you have not listened to last week's episode, I want you to stop right now and go listen to it. Then come back to me because we've got a lot of things to discuss today. So you're gonna need some background context. Anywho, this lecture today will be very, very, very strongly inspired by a woman named Cheryl Wall, who sadly passed away this April. During her life, she was an English professor at Rutgers University, and her specialty was in black women's writing with a focus on Zora Neale Hurston. There's a presentation that she gave at the 25th Anniversary Chicago Humanities Festival in 2014 about Hurston, and we will be linking that in our show notes if you want to check it out. So with that said, let's get this party started. Okay, so we're going to go over a lot of people who are instrumental in the Harlem Renaissance, and were very groundbreaking in this uplifting black cultural way. But Zora Neale Hurston plays a very interesting role in the movement and I think she offers a very unique perspective of the movement as a whole. She was an author and has several very famous books published like Tell My Horse, Mules and Men, and Dust Tracks on the Road. But by far her most renowned novel was Their Eyes Were Watching God. Before we get too much into her career though, here's a little backstory about her young life. Hurston was raised in Eatonville, Florida, which was one of the first all-black towns at the time. She gained a lot of inspiration for her novels from that town, and it was even the setting for some of them. Even though she moved there when she was around three, she would sometimes tell people that she was born in that town. But it's also kind of funny because she also routinely told people that she was born in 1901, when in fact, she was born in 1891. Now, Hurston studied at a couple different universities. She spent a little time studying at Howard University and also at Bernard College of Columbia University. But what I find most interesting is what Wall's lecture focused on, and it was not so much her formal education, but rather her time that she spent doing field work in Southern rural black communities because she was greatly inspired by them. And this fascination that she had towards these communities kind of stemmed from something that is really gonna set her apart from other people in the Harlem Renaissance movement, but also people in general at that time. There was this consistent idea of uplifting and shedding light on the best of the best black people, those who were pristine and well-educated. And while that was a wonderful form of representation, Hurston, in a lot of ways, rejected that idea.
0: She is quoted as saying, I am not tragically colored. There is no great sorrow dammed up in my soul, nor lurking behind my eyes. I do not mind at all. I do not belong to the sobbing school of Negrohood who hold that nature somehow has given them a low-down dirty deal and whose feelings are all hurt about it. Even in the helter-skelter skirmish that is my life, I have seen that the world is too strong regardless of a little pigmentation, more or less. No, I do not weep at the world. I am too busy sharpening my oyster knife, which is a line from her book, Dust Tracks on a Road. And while she does not say this in so many words, I think a large part of what she is saying is that no black person owes the onlooking world a perfect outer shell. Black people do not have to prove their worth or their humanity to the dominant white race. They need do nothing but be as they are to deserve dignity.
1: And that reflection is honestly backed up a lot by Wall's lecture as well, because one of the things that Hurston spent a lot of time doing during her fieldwork days was try to uncover information about something called hoodoo. Now, hoodoo is very interesting. I would love to dissect it in more detail at some point, but basically, hoodoo is the name of a spiritual practice as well as a cultural practice that was created by African American slaves and heavily influenced by African tradition. It was not only a way to hold on to their African heritage, but it was also this push against the cultural and spiritual practices that white people were consistently forcing onto them. And because of its rebellious nature, or more honestly, because white people would try and snuff it out of black communities if they found out about it, it was something that was very hidden. And by the time that Hurston was asking around about it, which was in the 1900s and in the rural South, where oppression and white supremacy had been the most concrete, as well as the most violent, many black people she asked were reluctant to mention anything about it. And furthermore, many of them kind of acted ashamed of it. They had this notion that it was old age nonsense and it made their community look uncivilized as hoodoo practices were not inherently Christian approved but Hurston was determined to get information about it. And that's exactly what she was able to do. Her fieldwork may have helped preserve a lot about hoodoo practices that might've otherwise been lost to time. And she was determined because nothing about hoodoo seemed shameful to her. Keep in mind, Hurston's father was a Baptist preacher and even in her own novels, she often used overtly Christian themes. Like her most popular book was Their Eyes Were Watching God. So, I mean, it's kind of obvious, but I think to her, hoodoo was a part of a larger picture. It was one of the ways that black people had forged their own path away from the control of white people. In essence, to be ashamed of hoodoo practices felt like being ashamed of not having European heritage. Hurston also openly rejected this idea that black music needed to be revamped or somehow made better. Some people were trying to say it needed to be during the Harlem Renaissance. In fact, she didn't like new-aged spirituals. She was like, um, dude, Black people have been singing proper spirituals forever. Y'all think black people haven't been out here creating? They literally have been creating for years. You just have these strict ideas about what creativity should look like. And so it's going over your head.
0: We just did an episode over how important spirituals had been to Black people, especially in the days of slavery. Though the intent of revamping spirituals during the Harlem Renaissance was surely an attempt to reclaim those songs as something more uplifting, and even more so, a way to celebrate Blackness. Hurston felt it was more damaging than helpful. To her, slave songs and spirituals did not need to be made into this production of refined music. They were already everything they needed to be. They were meant to represent the words, the hopes, and the spirits of those who had created them, and, as they were a form of
1: expression, why change them? Another thing that was controversial about Hurston was the beauty that she found in African-American speech. In Wall's lecture, she brings up something called pseudoscience. And to give you the official definition of that term, it means a collection of beliefs and practices mistakenly regarded as being based on scientific method. So anyway, there were so-called scientists of Hurston's time who had a theory as to why they thought black people often didn't use traditional English. And that was this theory that their lips were too big. Of course, most people with at least one living brain cell should be disgusted by that theory. There are, like, thousands of reasons why black people did not use what was considered standard English, like how they were educated, what region they were from, as well as the fact that having their own way of speaking outside of the white-approved way of speaking gave them a sense of having their own cultural practices. None of those reasons were that they were somehow incapable of it. But the sad reality is, that ridiculous theory literally came from people who claimed to be scientist there were educated people who believed that, which says less about science and more about how deeply biases exist on every level. When you live in a society that vilifies an entire group of people, that's how you get such baseless ideas. And people like Zora Neale Hurston, who had, and this is a quote from Wall's lecture, an unfailing ear for ordinary speech, saw right past that unfounded notion. She didn't view Southern black speech as this shameful thing that ignorant white people tried to push on them. In her lecture, Wall goes on to point out that what Hurston had to say about it is that
0: the language of rural black people was remarkable and beautiful, that the language was much more than just the words that were being spoken, but the theatrical nature and expression that came with it as well. And she said that African American language was a product of something called the will to adorn, there's a quote from Zora that captures this. The will to adorn is the second most notable characteristic in Negro expression. Perhaps his idea of ornament does not attempt to meet conventional standards, but it satisfies the soul of its
1: creator. This is also further made clear with her involvement of the literary magazine called Fire. Lots of people unfortunately forget about Fire for a couple of reasons. One reason was that the magazine only had one official issue. That's because the building in which they used to work on the magazine got burnt down, and due to insufficient funds, they were never able to continue the project. Another reason for its lack of success was that a lot of major figureheads in the Harlem Renaissance, and particularly those who were a part of something known as the Talented Tenth, didn't really vibe with it. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on what the term Talented Tenth means, because honestly, that's a whole nother podcast. But what I will say for clarification's sake is that the Talented Tenth was a name that is associated with well-educated and culturally refined Black people. And that idea of a refined Black person encapsulates a lot of debate regarding black representation during the Harlem Renaissance. Just like I said before, Zora really rejects this idea. See the goal of the magazine Fire, which by the way, I found an electronic version of it and we will be linking it in our show notes, was to give a voice to the younger generation of black artists, writers, and thinkers. And in that same spirit, they wanted to explore slightly more socially taboo topics in the black community, like homosexuality, interracial couples, promiscuous fashion and sex work, as well color prejudice. Lots of people in the black community, even outside of the talented 10th, really had a distaste for this magazine, even though it only ever had one issue. They found it degrading to the black image, as if the work that was published in fire wasn't sophisticated enough and it made the black population sound uneducated. Also, by attaching the interests of young black artists and thinkers to subjects like homosexuality and other risky topics, people felt it was leading the black youth in the wrong direction. But time and time, again, Hurston just did not connect with this ever-present idea of furthering the black race that people often had during the Harlem Renaissance period, and other time periods as well, of course. Now, if you think about that, this lack of desire that she had to do so, it might sound like she wasn't invested in bettering the black experience in America, or that she was ignoring how unequal black people were being routinely treated. But that couldn't be further from the truth. She had a deep understanding of how bleak and oppressive things were. Hello, she Was raised in Florida and did a ton of fieldwork in the South. If anything, she knew better than most how bad it was because she had been in the thick of it. In fact, I think it's revealed how much Hurston cared about justice in the Black community because of her work surrounding the case of Ruby McCollin.
0: There is so much to say about the case of Ruby McCollin, which took place well after the Harlem Renaissance in 1952, and it's genuinely tragic. Essentially, Ruby McCollin was a well-to-do black woman who had been accused of shooting a white man named Dr. C. Leroy Adams. Dr. Adams was not only well-liked by his community, he was a newly appointed state senator-elect. This took place in Live Oak, Florida, and according to her Southern and all-white jury and numerous white media sources, she was clearly guilty. She had become outraged by a medical bill Dr. Adams had given her and, in a moment of anger, shot him in cold blood. There was even speculation that the two of them had been in a love affair of sorts and that one of her children might even be his, even though McCollin had been married to someone else. But, as you might imagine, that was very far from the truth of what really happened.
1: Like Elisa mentioned, in many ways, McCollin had a crazy amount of stuff stacked against her. The fact that she had shot a white man and not only a white man, but a rich and well-respected white man. And then she had a jury of Southern white people. All of this is a perfect recipe for misinformation and a whole lot of racial prejudice. But a newspaper called the Pittsburgh Courier, which had one of the largest black audience in the nation at the time, asked Zora Neale Hurston to cover the case. Y'all, I found an awesome article about this case in relation to Hurston, and it's called From Fiction to Fact, Zora Neale Hurston and the Ruby McCollum Trial by Roberta S. McGuire, published in 2015, and we will link it in the show notes if you want to check it out. The article compares Hurston's work from the trial to the literary techniques she used while writing the iconic Their Eyes Were Watching God novel. But anyway, Hurston covered this case in a way that showed McCollum's humanity that had been forsaken by the white media and news coverage. See, McCullen Ellen testified that Adams had been beyond wicked to her. Trigger warning here. She claimed that Adams had not so much been her lover, but rather had raped her multiple times and forced her to bear his children. Now what's sad about this is anyone who knows even a little bit about North American history knows that what she claimed was more than a possibility. White men in the United States in particular have a long history of unimaginable mistreatment of black women, especially in the Old South during the slave era. But her jury didn't care about that, and they certainly didn't care about her either. Not to mention, a proper investigation, I guess is the term, was never carried out about these allegations because... Because no one was interested in bringing justice to her or to justify her action. Hurston, who, by the way, had to sit in a segregated section of the courtroom, was really one of the only ones reporting on the case to expose that the judge, who was real good buds with Dr. Adams before he died and was even a poll at his funeral, literally objected. Every single time McCullen tried to explain how evil Adams had been to her, McCullen tried to tell them all how he had hit her and she was trying to flee from him the day that she shot him. She tried to tell them how he refused to leave her alone and that's why she felt forced into killing him. But instead of having her side properly heard, each time she was met with an objection. She was silenced at every turn. There are so many things to this case that make it tragic, but we won't go too much more into detail over it. It's just super important to acknowledge the work that Hurston did on that case. She is the reason why it received so much widespread attention. And in many ways, she was the only one of the time who was telling the story correctly. So while she might not have seen herself as somebody who was caught up in the notion of furthering the race, she clearly was very aware that changes needed to be made in the way the black people were treated.
0: To read a quote straight from the article by McGuire that Wren just mentioned, while a writer of stories about black folk and the black community, she declined to include herself among the category of race men and women, which she described as black intellectuals who saw themselves as champions of race consciousness and for whom no Negro exists as an individual. So, in many ways, Hurston saw this idea of bettering the race as a slippery slope to climb. To her and other critics of this concept, it was as if furthering the race meant fixing the race, as in, If there is not change in what it means to be black, black people will never receive justice. If black people did not become refined, if they do not become properly assimilated into the larger white and European society that is present in America, then they would never be equal but to Hurston, it seems she didn't think it should be up to black people to put their best foot forward. Furthermore, she saw the individualism in each black person. There was no right way to be black. Black people should not have to act ashamed of the ways they differ from white people in order to gain respect. Respect should just be given regardless.
1: But see, I think that's the thing. These notions like the Talented Tenth or even like Northern Black families who had found different forms of financial success occasionally, which, you know, was in many ways what fueled the Harlem Renaissance as it was a cultural boom in cities that were mostly Northern. Like we talked about last week, there was a lot of criticism about this movement. And one of them is that overall, some felt it was too wrapped up in how the leaders of the movement seemed too fixated on white approval and Hurston adds another layer to that not just white approval but even within the black community this lack of clarity between european white culture versus black culture in america specifically because if you're going off of what it meant to be high society the talented tenth was meant to be comprised of those who were the most educated those who had been classically trained and were seen as cultured and for the most part as that was the overarching voice of many at the time hurston honestly faced so much criticism and backlash. For years, people had seen her work as a front to black culture and an embarrassment. Some even said that she played right into the hands of white people by painting a laughable picture of black culture in her work. People like Harold Priest claimed that Hurston made black people seem primitive because she would use improper English in her character dialogue. Though she was seen as someone who paved a ton of roads for black women, as she really embodies what it means to be an independent and self-made person, that same ideology that she held about being self-made also came with some other way more problematic views as well. For instance, later in her life in the 50s, she was known to not support integration and even opposed government programs that would help ensure more jobs were going to black people. That was because she viewed government aid as a double-edged sword. She had worries that too much government aid would lead to an overly dependent black population and that black people and said government support would forever be used as the political tool of white politicians.
0: Though. By the end of her life, she lived quite modestly, sometimes without much, if any money at all, and fell in and out of favor with the elite Black community for her more conservative beliefs. In more recent years, people have really begun to see the uniqueness of her work. Not to mention her most famous novel, though we did not discuss its plot or contents in this podcast, truly was a work of genius. It is to this day, a mixture of beautiful imagery and a celebration of black culture. People have loved discrediting her over the years. For instance, People like Jeffrey Anderson, who said that much of her fieldwork might have been fabricated, and though we can't speak on how much of that claim is true, Zora Neale Hurston will never not be an iconic woman who should be appreciated. Though there was much of her life we weren't able to fit into today's lecture, she really did raise some interesting questions about the gatekeeping that took place during the Harlem Renaissance and the black community in general. I think in our modern context, it can be easy to dismiss conservative thought because it is often underdeveloped and feels like they're resisting change out of fear. Hurston's ideas, while we can't say we 100% agree with him, don't lack logic and clear thought like much of modern conservative thought often does. I think we should also fight to not only hear her ideas, but also adapt her ideology of unwaveringly supporting and uplifting Black voices in their pure form. With respectability politics, a lot of Black people get dismissed because they are viewed as unintelligent, and this is surely a bias we have to combat in our society. And I'll leave you with one last thought. Black women are one of the least heard demographics in our society, yet we are the most educated by far. We would be remiss to dismiss the work and sully the legacy of another black woman who already faced so much criticism in her lifetime. We should absolutely uplift her and, at the very least, respect the work she did in her lifetime.
1: And with that, we're going to take a break, get some tea, and be right back with you.
0: And now a word from our sponsors.
1: This week is brought to you by Elisa's Natural Hair Journey.
0: Combs, creams, conditioners, oils, and more. Have you tried every method to maintain moisture and definition in your curls? Do you wake up in the morning with your bonnet beside you instead of on your head where you left it? then you know the love and struggle Elisa has for her natural hair. If you want to help her have the sometimes pricey products and tools she needs to force moisture into this
1: thick forest of follicles,
0: then consider donating to Ren and Elisa's Ko-Fi or joining us on Patreon.
1: Elisa's natural hair journey. It takes a lot to tame this mane. such a lovely little melody that piece was yet again from the legendary dr stephen weber thank you again dr weber for letting us use the piece I realized that the songs that I've been picking by him have all been from his album Multiplicity. And that's my bad because it's my favorite album. (laughs) So I might be a little biased, but he has so many more albums than that. And I wanted y'all to get a taste of some of the other ones. (laughs) This one is from his album called Beauty Quest. Now this album actually has several songs on it that I love, but the one that you just heard was Fallscape and he actually has a song for each season. And now that we're sufficiently into the realm of fall, I was like, oh my gosh, we got gotta use Fallscape. (laughs) I love this one so much. And actually, according to Dr. Weber, it was a one-take improvisation, so that's very impressive. And I chose a section of the song that actually was in the middle of the piece because I thought it'd just like fit best for our purposes today, but honestly, from start to finish, this song is beautiful. Again, it's improvised, and there are so many different elements to it. It actually starts off with more what I would call kind of like mystical and enchanting vibes to it, but then it comes to the middle of the song with these nice gentle harmonies like you just heard, and I'm not Going to tell you how it ends because I want you all to go listen to it for yourself and see what you think about it. I promise you won't regret it. So, Alisa, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There was some nice rain that came in this morning, and I think that was a refreshing way to start my day off.
1: I love rain, but especially on rainy nights. Oh my gosh. I feel like I sleep so much better when it's raining outside. Yeah how are you feeling today i'm feeling freaking fantastic <laughs> uh i just had an order come in and i got these new boots they're amazing i can't wait to like wear them out into the world they were made for walking indeed they were <laughs> i hope you're proud of yourself because i'm not anyway what kind of tea are you having today lisa i'm having a
0: another one of Wren's blend another one <laughs>
1: Okay, Khaled.
0: And this one has a black tea base with rose petals, rose hips, vanilla bean, lychee, hibiscus, and flavor essence.
1: I will say I did pop off on that one. She came out nicely.
0: (laughs) Yes, it's a very like floral, but still like with that vanilla-y warmth. It reminds me of summer. And I think it's really good iced. I'm having it hot right now, but (laughs) it's really good iced.
1: Yeah, and you might be surprised with the listing. If you know what hibiscus is and if you know the flavor, you might be like, um, let's Listen, I promise it is just the right amount to bring out just like this brightness and like vibrant flavor. I promise it works. <laughs> and what are you having over there, Vin? As I still am in the spirit of fall. <laughs> I decided to do a roasted blend today. So I have banjo hujijo, which we've actually had on the show before. So it's banjo hujijo, which is a Japanese roasted tea. And then it's also mixed in with a little gain maicha, which gain maicha is also a Japanese tea. It has sencha, which is like one of the most classic green teas you can have, popcorn, and roasted rice so they both kind of have roasted profiles and i absolutely love mixing them together gosh it's so good during this time of year
0: okay so i don't know why i've never mixed those two (laughs) together considering those are some of my favorite teas not to mention my favorite green teas like i know i know You you just did some.
1: I know I did. I mixed all of the tea in the other room. So Lisa was not aware that I was going to be making this. So the look of jealousy that just registered over her face while I was explaining my tea. I was like,
0: wow, I didn't know it did that. <laughs> So who's your artist this week, Alisa? My artist this week is Hallie Monet. She's a black artist. She only has one song out right now. It's called Anchor, and her voice is beautiful. She does a lot of really great runs, and she has a great range. It's an amazing song, and the cover art is gorgeous, too. (laughs) She's actually also part of an a cappella group at the University of Central Florida called The Voice Box, and the group is diverse and they make great music. They have a video from their TikTok on Twitter where they covered Billie Eilish's song My Future. Definitely check her and them out. Rin, mm-hmm. who's your artist this week?
1: I don't have one. I'm just kidding, I do. My artist this week is Emily King. Our roomie Lena actually is the person who first showed me her stuff earlier this year. Lena has such good taste in music, Hi. key. She has a musical palette handcrafted by the gods. Honestly, she has great taste in everything, like music, shows, life decisions. <laughs> She's awesome.
0: Yes, I can 100% confirm this.
1: But anyway, Emily King was born in New York City and her parents are actually a singing duo. So she literally has been around music her whole life. She knew from a very young age that she wanted to pursue music. And when she was 16, she left high school and got her GED in order to focus and devote herself to her music career. To me, her music has this raw feeling to it. You can just tell that there's so much passion packed into each and every note that she sings. Her melodies often purposely flow in and out of a loose rhythm, and minimal instrumental elements are incorporated as well. My favorite EP from her was released back in 2011, and it's called The 7 EP. The song that I'm recommending is on that EP, and it's called Georgia. I get that song stuck in my head routinely, and I hum it all day, every day. It's kind of ridiculous how much I'm into it.
0: (laughs) Why don't you introduce our activist
1: for this week, Wren? All right, okay, I'll do that. Our activist this week is Charlene Carthers. Charlene is a 35-year-old black lesbian author and, of course, social activist who lives in Chicago, where she was born and raised. She is quite an impressive lady who has over 15 years of experience in racial justice, feminist, and youth leader development movement work. On top of that, she is also the founding national director of the Black Youth Project 100, Her passion for standing with marginalized peoples is truly intersectional. And while her main focus is on black liberation, she also uses her platform to spread awareness on subjects like immigration rights and economic justice. Like I mentioned before, she's an author and she's actually had her work published in an impressive amount of stuff like the New York Times, the Washington Post, Chicago Reader, The Nation, and Ebony and Essence magazines. Her impressive work has even led to her becoming a featured guest speaker at different universities all around the country, including her very own alma mater, Illinois Wesleyan University. Also, at the end of her about page, she had two things that I really loved and I wanted to point out. One thing is that she is inspired very heavily by black women, including the iconic Marsha P. Johnson and her own mama. And then the other thing is that she likes to spend her spare time cooking. And she, this is a quote, believes the best way to learn about people is through their food. I adore that sentiment and I totally echo it. Keep thriving and bettering the world, Charlene. We see you and we appreciate you. Onto a much less fun topic, Alisa, what's happening in the news? Nothing. All right, we'll talk to you <laughs> All next right, week. let's pack it up. <laughs> For news this week, we wanted
0: to talk about the elephant in the room, and that is the presidential debate that took place this past Tuesday. When and if you discuss this debate with other people,
1: specifically Trump supporters, first of all, I'm sorry if you have to do that, yeah.
0: <laughs> don't go into those discussions thinking it should persuade them into not supporting Trump anymore. I wish... Wholeheartedly, that there was a way to reason with these people, that they would see his dangerous incompetence and finally decide to drop him, but that's just not how this is playing out. They have chosen to back him when he's mocked disabled people, he's sexist, he's accused Hispanic and Latinx people of being rapists and criminals, and he's just disparaged so many people in our society that this list could go on and on. On. These debates aren't going to change their mind, especially since he's going against Biden, who didn't even do well in the Democratic debates. Instead, use these debates to fuel yourself. See the disrespect, the incompetence, the just utter lack of care for other people and let that fuel you to vote and to get your friends and family to vote too. Let it remind you how important this upcoming election is. That being said, let's move into some key things that happened in the debate. One, Trump didn't condemn white supremacy and inferred and implied that white supremacist groups are coming from the right, which I have no clue where he got that from. Really? It's just such a wild accusation. What? (laughs) He also told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by, which this isn't even the first time he's failed to condemn white supremacy. So I honestly wasn't surprised.
1: It doesn't even feel like he's condemning white supremacy so much as he's just openly admitting that white supremacists can just like be around. Like, just stand back and stand by. It's fine. You can hold Stand your- by and yeah. wait. I'll take care of this. Like, don't worry. I'll do all the horrible things for you and make sure the white supremacy stays firmly intact. Yeah, you
0: just sit there and watch. I'll take care of it from here.
1: Two, Trump didn't explain how
0: he was going to do better with COVID-19. And he just said that he did great. He's doing great. <laughs> and with Biden, it somehow would have been worse. But he's great. And everything he's ever done is great. Thousands of people have died but he's doing a great job good job buddy and three biden didn't tell us how he'd make things better but that it would be different honestly the debate was just chaotic they were talking over each other interrupting each other and the moderator deflecting there were unanswered questions and basically they were just pointing fingers and claiming to be better than the other one and neither of them had any real plans or answers for anything
1: yeah i think something that i'm seeing a lot in the news and just in general is that like it's not that biden did well it's that trump did horribly and biden was like in the room like (laughs) like it's it's not the Biden. listen we're not over here like wow biden you're amazing yeah no like no it was just
0: all horrible if anything this debate gave me flashbacks to the democratic debates and i was like how How is this what we're left with? Yes. How did people watch this and all of a sudden Biden was winning? I know. (laughs) Elections. But anyway, that's where we're going to leave it for this week. Be sure to
1: check out our Patreon tiers. They're really cool.
0: So be on the lookout during this week. We'll be releasing our topic of the week.
1: Ahem. Spoiler alert. It's going to be about the Harlem
0: Renaissance. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like we're doing a series. But yes, thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next week. With that, bye.